Jack the Ripper, Ted Bundy, son of Sam. Is the serial killer a modern phenomenon? Is there something specifically masculine about mass murder? Find out today on Footnoting History. Welcome to Footnoting History, where all the best stories are in the footnotes. I am your host, Leslie Skousen, and today I'm going to explore some lesser-known female serial killers in history. From ancient Rome to early modern Europe and colonial Chile, these serial killers took a different approach than our more recent celebrity killers. The carnage they wrought was no less terrible, but the traits they have in common across continents and centuries are truly striking. One surprising story begins in ancient Rome, from 332 to 331 BCE. To the dismay of many, two well-known consuls, Marcus Claudius Marcellus and Gaius Valerius, fell ill and died unexpectedly. The fear was that they were both stricken by an unknown plague. They were not the only ones, either. More and more powerful men began to fall ill and die. The suspicion of plague grew, since the victims shared a social circle. Yet, curiously for a plague, the servants and slaves of each household were fortunate enough to escape unaffected. We know of this story because of Titus Livy, the historian who lived 300 years later and tried to synthesize evidence from previous historians and storytellers. Take this with the grain of salt that we should. Livy tells us that as more powerful men fell ill, and as most of them died, escape from this mystery plague seemed impossible. Impossible, that is, until a maidservant went in secret to the city magistrate, Quintus Fabius Maximus. She offered to tell him a terrible secret if he promised to give her protection from everything that followed. The consuls and senate discussed the idea and agreed to hear her out. Certain women in the community, high-born women with husbands in positions of power, were collaborating together in a terrible conspiracy. She described how they came together while their husbands were busy with political duties. As friends, they learned to concoct a series of poisonous potions that could be discreetly applied to the food and drink of their husbands or their powerful friends. During her interview, she even claimed to know where they could find the women at that moment, creating their next batch of evil in order to poison a new victim. They followed the maidservant and discovered a variety of poisonous ingredients next to bottles of brewed potions already made up and ready to disperse as needed. The investigators confiscated the discovered potions and brought 20 well-regarded matrons to the forum in order to stand trial and explain themselves. Two of these women, whom Livy names as Cornelia and Sergia, came from very ancient families indeed and held high positions in society. They stood forward and dismissed these terrible accusations by explaining that the poisons were medicines. The maidservant accused the two women of lying. She demanded that, should these poisons be so medicinal, then they should have no trouble drinking their contents. The court was cleared, and all 20 women on trial took the challenge. They drank the potions and died in front of the consuls. With this apparent demonstration of guilt, the senators brought in their attendants, friends, servants, slaves, and possible conspirators. As many as 170 women were brought in and found to be guilty of conspiring to murder the men in power. Livy conveys this shocking conspiracy 300 years later. It could be a somewhat accurate description of the event since he refers frequently to the contemporary source material. Alternatively, it could reflect a larger fear about women and servants during Livy's time. A society built on this type of division of labor requires those in power to trust those who care for them. 
this tale could be a cautionary one, and fictional at that. Or, as we will see, it could be the account of real women seeking to improve their position through the careful application of murder. Improving a woman's position may have had something to do with enhancing her power through beauty. This brings us to the infamous case of Elizabeth Balthry, the so-called Blood Countess from Hungary. Born in 1560, the Countess grew up near Transylvania. She occupied a high social position and benefited from the education of music, languages, and writing. After her marriage at the age of 15 to a 19-year-old aristocrat, she began to run the estate. Her husband left often, first to complete his studies in Vienna, and later to fight the Long War from 1593 to 1606. She was left largely to her own devices on the estate, with a large fortune to entertain her. And it was during this time that she began to grow concerned about losing her beauty. Around 1602, authorities began to respond to reports from local peasants concerning large numbers of missing girls. Testimony at court described lucrative offers to become maidservants at her big estate. Subsequent tales described horrific living conditions, locked in dungeons, entertaining the countess by pulling flesh from bones, branding the girls, or even amputating limbs. Supposedly, the countess collected their blood to drink and ultimately bathe in it. None of this prevented her from aging, however. She began using her social network to invite or kidnap daughters of noble birth, hoping their virgin blood might be more powerful in securing her beauty. Gentry families from far and wide sent their daughters to the estate with the promise of learning court etiquette and meeting powerful potential suitors. Some of these daughters would never return. Elizabeth's husband died in 1604, and this is when her secret interests began to fall apart. During the transition from married woman to widow, her network of conspiring helpers cracked. Stories began to flood through, and she was put on trial, convicted, and sentenced to life imprisonment. Hundreds of people testified against Balthory's household, dozens in a single day, day after day after day. All of the servants within the house spoke of untold horrors that they had witnessed and even committed themselves under the direction of their powerful and violent mistress. Three of her co-conspirators were tortured and executed by the state as punishment. One had her fingers pulled off before execution. Elizabeth was given life imprisonment, bricked into an isolated room with no windows and slits for passing food. She died four years later for the murder of 80 girls officially. And yet witnesses counted a minimum of 100 bodies being carried out of the castle, and one historian puts the real number at well over 600 murdered girls from the time period. This shocking life story may be the subject of fabricated tales, or it could be the true story of a murdering countess. More than one historian has suggested that Elizabeth was not truly a murderer, but rather the subject of a vast conspiracy. What is particularly shocking about her story is that she is not the only so-called blood countess from this time period. We cannot speak of the Balthory story without also speaking of Doña Catalina de los Rios Lisbes Guerrier, better known in colonial Chile as La Quintrala. La Quintrala was born in 1604, just as the Balthory investigation was getting underway. She was descended from German and Spanish landowners and born on a large estate with many slaves and serfs working the lands. She grew up quickly, we might say, and adopted a life of luxurious excess. Food, drink, sex, and violence seemed to define her life from a very early age. 
She ultimately married a high-ranked Catalonian noble at age 22. Those who knew her described her fiery red hair as a physical manifestation of her fiery temperament. Witnesses told of her comfort in slashing slaves casually as a young girl as she walked around the estate. Serfs and slaves on her estates died in large numbers whenever she came to visit. From her young teenage years to her new married life, La Quintrala seemed to be followed by dead bodies. She is also rumored to have murdered her own father, who died under mysterious circumstances that were likely due to a poisoned chicken dinner. Eventually, La Quintrala was investigated for over 40 mysterious and violent deaths, including a priest who came to interview her about the suspicious death of her lover, her father, and some of her friends. Among the 40 official deaths, just 15 had enough evidence to go to trial. However, La Quintrala was well-connected through birth and money. Her sister had married the local justice, her influence was fairly well-established, and she was not convicted of a single charge. Finally, at age 60, with another trial underway, prepared against her, she finally died of natural causes. Local stories suggest that the 15 documented murders were only the tip of the iceberg, and that the true number of uncounted slaves, servants, and serfs, whose deaths were not so carefully documented, may have been in the hundreds. What is interesting about this case compared to Elizabeth Balfoury is that La Quintrala did not seem to have any unifying reason for murdering those around her, not just slaves and serfs, but her father, a lover, and a priest. The testimony that survives from her life refers to a lust of her blood itself rather than some sort of superstition about bathing in the blood of virgins to preserve her youth. The source material is questionable, though. How much of this was documented violence and murder, and how much was just juicy village gossip? The best case we have is her final trial, which began in 1660. In addition to the local testimony, her case went all the way to Lima and Santiago. Her final acquittal may have been less about justice and more about taking a stand to protect the noble classes from a bad reputation among the throngs of laboring classes that were so important for the success of the Spanish Americas. There were other tales of so-called blood countesses from this period. Consider Daria Saltikova of Russia, who was accused of murdering dozens of people. Her first victim was an unfaithful lover. When she learned of his betrayal, she murdered him violently, destroying his body well after he had died. This taste of blood soon led to a rampage of the area, killing those friends or associates who scorned her, and those who were powerless to resist her. Motivated, apparently, by a hatred of all young women whose beauty had not yet been worn by aging, she stands accused of kidnapping, mutilating, and tortured young maidens to death across the Moscow area in the 18th century. Her own family sent a petition to Queen Catherine, whose courts found her guilty of 38 murders among 150 suspected victims. She was imprisoned and publicly shamed until her death of natural causes. It's interesting to note that at this time, Russia had abolished the death penalty, and so they were unable to simply execute her under these suspicions. Are the blood countesses a real phenomenon, or are they the product of a resentful high society who viewed free-spirited and powerful young women as a clear and present danger? Each blood countess leaves a trail of legal documents to support these terrible stories, but each one also has their historian supporters who believe the tales to be fabricated attempts to take down a powerful noble woman. We'll probably never know the truth, but 
what would the opposite of a blood countess be? From a wealthy, high-born, well-connected woman wreaking havoc across the countryside, we might find a poor, low-born, hard-working woman in the city. In 17th century Rome, we find Giulia Tofana, a beautiful Italian woman who felt sympathy and pity towards working women who were trapped in loveless marriages. She was born in Palermo and ultimately executed there as well for murdering her own husband. In between those years, she lived in Rome, selling potions to the lower classes who needed an escape from their abusive husbands. There, according to her own confession, she assisted in brewing the potions to murder over 600 unknowing men. The type of poison she developed is known today by her name, aqua tofana. It is a combination of arsenic and lead that can be added to any meal or drink undetected. The poison works slowly, and this can mask the cause of illness in the actual death. The victim suffers as though falling ill and catching a sickness. Wives can then spend their last few days busying themselves with the business of treating the sick husband and covering up their violent act with overt performances of piety and nurturing goodness. Criminologists often refer to poison as a feminine method of killing. While women comprise 11% of murderers, they occupy only 2% of serial killers. Rather than killing violently and en masse, women tend to kill people they know, members of their family or friends. Instead of violent axes or guns or knives, poison is the most common method. Perhaps this is due to traditional gender roles. As homemakers, women might be expected to prepare foods and medicines, where adding a drop or two of arsenic could be done without alarm. Even in 2012, a Washington Post analysis of female murders from 2003 to 2011 found that women were seven times as likely as men to use poison as their weapon. In light of these modern statistics, the so-called blood countesses of the early modern period seems to be an unusual outlier to a larger trend of women who murder by poison, sometimes just a single victim and sometimes in larger groups. Whether it was to take a stand against the power of their political husbands in ancient Rome, or a woman hoping to help her poor sisters escape abusive marriages, the murderess in history serves a very different understanding of a woman's place in the social hierarchy. If you're a serf, keep an eye on your countess. If you're a husband, be good to your wife. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.